Hi, I'm Dr. Ashley Maitek, a member of the faculty at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine. Over the next several weeks, we're presenting a mini series called The Veterinary Detective. In each episode, we discuss a case with a veterinary clinician who walks us through the diagnostic process to help us understand how they apply clinical reasoning in their practice. When a pony becomes lame, how do you narrow down your differential diagnosis list? We'll answer that question in this episode we call The Case of the Pranceless Pony. Joining me is Dr. Lori Madsen, an equine veterinarian at the University of Illinois Veterinary Teaching Hospital with an interest in equine sports medicine. In this case, we have a 20-year-old Welsh pony mare who had presented for acute onset lameness. Let's hear how horses and ponies are graded for lameness. Uh, so she presented for acute lameness um, and the owners presented her for acute lameness and they felt that it was her right front. Um, but her walking in, she was actually bilaterally lame in both front limbs. So um, the AAP has a, the American Association of Equine Practitioners has a grading scale for lameness. And we would have called her a four out of five, meaning she was lame at the walk. So we did not need to trot her to be able to see that she was lame. How often do you, are you presented with a horse that is acutely lame? Um, a fair amount, a fair amount, but there's really only about five things that are actually, there's a, there's a pretty short list of things that will cause you to be acutely lame at the walk. So, um, it narrows our list down just a little bit. Lame at the walk is pretty, is pretty lame. And then you said there's a grading scale for lamenesses. Yes. Can, can you walk, give us kind of the bird's eye view of, you said she's a four out of five, but yep. what's a one? So zero is sound, right? Zero is no lameness. One is every once in a while, I can see them take a lame step if I'm doing something in order to bring it out. So maybe the horse needs to be ridden under saddle. Maybe I have to turn the horse in tight circles. But even doing all of those things, I can't see the lameness consistently. A grade two out of five lameness is I can consistently see the lameness at the trot if, again, I'm doing something to bring it out. So they're riding the horse or they are turning them in a circle or, or something like that. Grade three out of five lameness is I can see the lameness consistently at the trot. So all I got to do is trot them in a straight line and you can find the lameness. A four out of five is lame at the walk. And a five out of five lameness is what we would call three-legged lame, meaning the horse is not willing to bear weight on the leg. Okay. So I'm assuming that's just a, a nice standardized tool for how you can communicate with other veterinarians and be a, maybe be a little bit objective about something that's a very subjective. Correct. That, that scale is through the American Association of Equine Practitioners, um, which is a standardized scale. So um, it, it makes it easier to communicate with vets um, as far as the lameness that you're seeing. Did you get any other information after the horse came in? So I'm assuming they trailered it to you or you had to go out to the farm? Nope. They brought this one to us. Is that 
do you ever worry that when you trailer the horse, it's going to make their lameness worse? That like, they're going to be stressed, but then they're going to have to be like, I'm imagining they're going to have to, I don't know, put more weight on their legs or in, when they're in the back of the trailer and they're turning and all that stuff. Trailering a horse can add increased stress and trauma to them. Um, it depends a little bit on the problem that you have. Um, and it also depends on how they're shipped. So, um, for example, I have a horse with a fracture that's getting shipped in. I do not want them shipped in in a big box stall, right? Because that way they can't really lean against the walls to help support them. Where you might think, oh, give them as much space as you can. That's actually not helpful for them, right? We would rather have them in a smaller space and that way they can use the walls of the trailers to help balance themselves and stabilize themselves. Okay, that makes so, sense. There's no horse yeah. there's no horse seat belts or uh there's no what? Horse seat belts. No. <laughs> so the best that we can do is give them less space to help give them balance. Got it. So this horse comes in, backs off the trailer, you notice right away it's a pretty lame mare. And yes where do you go from there? Well, so I think just like anything else, right? You start with a physical exam um, and you get a basic physical exam to assess the horse and, and see where you're at. Um, again, our lameness exam is abbreviated, we'll say, because I don't need to trot this horse. I don't need to flex this horse. I don't need to do anything to necessarily get a baseline idea of what leg it's coming from. And can you explain what flex this horse means in case there's people listening that they've never heard that term? Sure. So a lot of times what we'll do is we'll watch a horse go. So we'll, we'll trot a horse and um, try to decide which leg we think looks like the primary source of the lameness. And then from there, we can do joint flexions where we will take the joints and put pressure on them and hold them in flexion for a period of time. Um, and in essence, what that's doing is sort of torquing the joint a little bit, and then we'll ask them to trot off. And if the lameness is exacerbated after the flexion, then you start to think maybe it's coming from that area. So it helps us take it from, okay, it's the leg to maybe it's the fetlock or the carpus or the tarsus. And so it starts to help us narrow things down as to where it may be on the leg. So it can help you localize a lot, it sounds like. And then my other little question that I remember struggling with, and you're going to laugh at me, is the difference between flex and extend. I remember first year of vet school, I I would sometimes get confused between what is flexing a joint and extending a joint. Sure. Do you have any, well, maybe you can, you can tell us what the, what that means. What's the difference between the two, since it's important to working up equine lamenesses and, um, if you, you teach a lot of veterinary students, first year veterinary students in particular, if you have any tricks to help them remember the difference between flex and extend the joint. I can't, well, I guess as a veterinarian, you can't really extend a, a horse's joint. Like when they load it, they extend it, but I can't, I guess I would say hyperextend it. So I can't go through that range of motion. So if just on a practical level, if you as a vet student are picking up a leg, you are probably flexing it. Um, Cause I can't off the top of my head, think of 
any way to extend a horse's joint. Not really. Um, and so I guess as a more academic answer, I would say to flex it is to close the angle of the range of motion versus extension would be to increase the angle of your range of motion. Okay, great. Where did you go from there? Like I said, again, there's only, there's only a handful of things that are going to give you really an acute onset lameness that's that severe. Um, and then the fact that it's bilateral, it's not just one leg, it's both legs, makes that list get even smaller. You said there's five things that make a horse acutely lame. And yep. what, are, what are those five things that immediately bump to the top of your differential list for this patient? So top, top five that cause acute lameness, um, subsolar abscess, laminitis, fracture, septic synovial structure. And by a synovial structure, I mean a joint, a tendon sheath or a bursa and cellulitis. Okay, great. And then you said this horse had it, it was affecting the horse in both limbs. So, um, and and that cuts down your differential list quite a bit. So what are you left with if you have something that's acutely lame horse? Now it's in both limbs when you take a look at it. Right. So you figure what are the odds that a horse fractured two legs in one shot, right? That would be unusual. So fracture kind of gets pulled off that list. Um, again, as far as an abscess, a horse can have an abscess, but to get abscesses in both front feet simultaneously at the same time seems a little unusual. Um, again, septic synovial structure, those usually happen as a result of trauma or a puncture or something. So being in both legs, that takes that a little lower as well. Um, and so ultimately you're really left with a cellulitis or laminitis are really your, your top two then moving forward. That makes sense when you explain it that way. So it sounds like you move, you had to move on to the step of this algorithm of trying to figure out what's going on where we're to the point where we're going to need to do diagnostics. What diagnostics did you do for this patient? We did put hoof testers on the horse um, and she was very sensitive to hoof testers all along the toe of both front feet. Can you explain what hoof testers are? What does that mean? So hoof testers are like a big giant hemostat, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. Um, And you can squeeze the horse's foot. A normal horse's foot does not react um, to hoof testers. And so if I can squeeze a foot and then they react, if they show signs of discomfort for that, then I start to think, okay, maybe the problem is in the foot. And it helps me localize where in the foot the problem may be. So she was sensitive. She was very sensitive um, to hoof testers across the toes of both front feet, which again makes us think it's probably in the foot. Um, You know, other things on physical exam that we had found were she had significant increased digital pulses of both front feet. Um, We would call them bounding. And... um, also overall, besides that, the rest of the physical was fairly unremarkable, but she was really fuzzy. And I think she came in, in like midsummer. So she had a really like roughed up hair coat and 
all in her, I would say her coat did not look very healthy. And bounding pulses in a horse. What are other differentials? We know laminitis is on your list. Are there other differentials for bounding pulses in a horse? Yeah. So I, if you, you know, if you think about an increased digital pulse, all we're saying is there's increased blood flow to the foot. So IE inflammation, right? And so then you say, okay, what are other conditions that cause significant inflammation to the feet, right? So commonly we think of, a, again, an abscess or a fracture, things like that will, you know, can give you an increased digital pulse. But then again, going back to the idea of this is bilateral and not unilateral, again, puts those things back to being lower on our list of problems. Thus far, a physical exam was performed and hoof testers were applied to her feet. It was also noted that the pony had bounding pulses. Next, radiographs were taken of the pony's feet. They revealed that the pony's left front foot was about 15 degrees rotated. But what does degrees rotated mean? So the coffin bone, if you think of the dorsal aspect of the coffin bone, it should be parallel to the dorsal aspect of the hoof capsule. And the coffin bone is the bone that's in, should be in the hoof, right? Correct. So that's your third phalanx or your distal phalanx, um, better known as the coffin bone. And so that's the one in the hoof and it is suspended in the hoof capsule the, you know, it's sort of a little bit of a tug of war, right? So the lamina that are in the hoof are pulling the coffin bone dorsally, and then the deep digital flexor tendon runs down the back of the leg and attaches to the coffin bone. And so the the deep digital flexor tendon is pulling it palmarly. Um, And so what often happens in cases of laminitis the lamina is inflamed and the lamina let go. And the only thing left pulling is the deep digital flexor tendon. And so it rotates the coffin bone away from the hoof wall. So your dorsal hoof capsule and the dorsal aspect of your coffin bone should be parallel with each other. But a lot of times in laminitis, the rotation is when the dorsal aspect of your coffin bone rotates away. And we can measure that degree in the foot on a radiograph. Probably the worst case scenario, the worst rotation would be imagining that coffin bone rotating all the way where it can almost puncture the bottom. Not, I don't, I don't know if that actually can happen where it can uh, come almost out the bottom of the hoof, but could rotate enough where it's pointing on it. Yeah. And so that's pretty bad when they're, you know, sort of, you think of them like walking on the tip of their toe. Um, And so with cases of laminitis, we can see that horses can rotate or they can sink. And where, again, the coffin bone gets pushed due to the horse's body weight, because remember the coffin bone is suspended in the horse's foot. And so when all the lamina let go, the horse's body weight can push the coffin bone distally and can actually, in really bad scenarios, come through the bottom of the foot. And when you say this patient is 15 degrees rotated in one foot and 20, I think, in the other, right? Yeah. Um, How bad is that? Is that really bad? Is that kind of bad? That's pretty bad. Pretty bad. Okay. And then where, where do you go from here with that information? What do you do? Well, so at that point, we had a diagnosis. And so then 
you're dealing with two issues. You're dealing with trying to um, make the pony feel better, right? So, um, and we got to address that. But then you also, if you can, the goal is to fix the underlying problem, right? Um, and so then you have to chase after why did the pony have a laminitic event? So in the short term, you need to try and treat this this patient what options do you have or what did you end up doing to treat her we had her in the hospital for i think about a week um and again a lot of supportive care so we you know um were icing her feet to try to decrease the inflammation and inflammatory mediators circulating to her feet um she had on special boots which have like these really thick gel inserts to help provide cushion um to the bottom of her feet as well as non-steroidals um systemic non-steroidals to address inflammation as well so over the course of the week as she was getting more comfortable finally by the end of the week we also had the barrier service uh, work on her feet to trim her feet in a manner that would make her more comfortable. Is the goal that you, from a pathology standpoint with these cases, you mentioned how it's supportive care is to make them comfortable. And then is that just to buy you time so that the lamina can regrow or what is, what are you trying to accomplish within the hoof at that point? Acutely, we're trying to just stop inflammation, right? We're just trying to stop the progression of laminitis. Um, and then also chasing out why she originally had the problem. And then hopefully if we can address that, it won't happen again. Um, and then moving forward, it's then if you can get everything under control, um, it then becomes a long-term process of trimming her feet to get them back to where they should be as the foot continues to grow. Okay. I got one more question about this acute phase treatment. And then I want to ask you kind of what, what you needed to do to prevent it or what caused it in the first place. Do you expect, say, over this week of time, she's hospitalized or you're treating her and you notice she's getting better clinically, she's less ouchy on her feet, do you, re- do you repeat radiographs or x-rays and want to see the coffin, do you want to see the bone go back to normal or do you expect it to always be abnormal like that? So you're not going to see, so I would re-radiograph if we were losing ground. Um, if I, I thought we were either holding steady or getting better, and then it seems like she got more uncomfortable, then I would definitely re-radiograph to see what has changed. Um, besides that, the idea of derotating them and, and getting their foot back to where it should be, that's a long-term process. That's not going to happen in a week. That's not going to happen in a few weeks. So to radiograph, looking for changes positive changes, you're not going to find that on a radiograph because she has to grow foot and then we have to be able to trim it in order to make that happen. Can you tell us about why this happened to her in the first place? Yeah. And 
laminitis is a, you know, tricky disease that um, a lot of times you don't get to know what the underlying cause is. Fortunately for, for the pony, we did. Um, again, like I said, she had a, a pretty roughed up fuzzy coat in the middle of June. And so we suspected that she had underlying metabolic disease. And so we um, sent off samples to have, uh, there's sort of a, a generic panel, it's an equine metabolic panel that checks for insulin and glucose T4 um, and so all that. And turns out she had Cushing's disease. To detect the disease, Dr. Madsen ran an equine metabolic panel, a type of blood test that measures different hormones. Cushing's disease is also known as pituitary pars intermedia dysfunction, or PPID. It involves the pituitary gland at the base of the brain, which produces hormones in response to brain signals. In PPID, these normal mechanisms controlling hormone production are damaged and normal inhibitory mechanisms are lost. This causes excessive production of the normal hormones from the pituitary. These hormones then enter the circulation and affect the whole body. Clinical signs include increased coat length and delayed shedding of the winter coat, laminitis, lethargy, increased sweating, weight loss, and excessive drinking and urinating. Equids get it frequently and as a result have an increased incidence of laminitis. But now that Cushing's disease had been confirmed, how did that affect treatment? It, it makes it easier, I guess, because I actually have something to treat. Um, and so then we started her on medication for, for her Cushing's disease, um, which sounds simple, but it's not. I mean, it's simple enough giving her a pill every day. But she actually had, it was pretty difficult to get it controlled. Um, and so we spent a lot of time doing repeat blood work, trying to dial her in and really figure out how much medication she needed in order to, um, to control her, her Cushing's disease. So, but we did, we did finally get her under control. And then you mentioned with this patient in particular, you're able to get her through the short, short term, say a few days a week of care in the hospital. And then you were able to work with a farrier. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so having a good farrier is pretty important. Um, and so they can help trim the foot to support it biomechanically, I would say, to sort of get it back to having more of a normal function as well as um, making them be more comfortable. And I think a lot of us had, I certainly had this idea of a farrier was someone who just put shoes on a horse and working at the college, I've certainly had my eyes open to um, work with a lot of amazing farriers. And I, and I realized that they, they actually have a huge role in the medical care of these patients. And can you talk a little bit about what that's like when you work with them? I mean, do you guys look at the radiographs? Do you look at the x-rays together and say, well, I think we need to trim here. And, and how, how do you work with the farrier on a case like this? Yeah. So I guess, well, the first thing is probably, so yes, while a farrier puts shoes on horses, it's important to realize not all horses need shoes. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot more than just putting shoes on horses, right? So all horses need their feet trimmed, but not all horses need shoes. Um, 
And yeah, the farrier service, we work really closely together a lot. They'll look at radiographs, they look at the MRIs with us, um, and, you know, are really a, a big part of the cases with us. Um, they take different things into account that we don't, and so it's a different perspective. Um, it's a really useful perspective. And so frequently when we have cases together, um, you know, we just, everybody has their role in the case and, but we work closely together a lot and everybody sort of contributes with their skill set. I guess I would say. No, that sounds great. It's a, I, I think what you're saying is a, it's a great team collaborative approach on, on a case like this, it sounds like. And so what was the prognosis you would give to the owners about this patient? Well, so I guess in equine, we generally have two prognoses. Um, we have prognosis for athletic use and we have prognosis for um, life. So, which I feel like a lot of other species don't really have to distinguish between the two. And so fortunately for the pony, she was a sort of backyard pony anyway that didn't get ridden. So we weren't really too concerned with athletic function. Um, it was really just, can she be happy and comfortable and live her life on the farm? Um, and so we were giving her a prognosis of fair um, because at that point in time when she was discharged, you're we still waiting on the results from the lab work. So we didn't actually know that she was cushionoid yet. So we didn't really have a solid diagnosis for the underlying cause of the lameness. And so with not having that, that's harder, that's a harder area to fix or to, to assess, I guess I would say. When you say you gave a fair prognosis to the owners, what is that? Is that 50, 50? Like we, we think there's at least a 50% chance she's going to be able to be a pasture. I I would have called called her 50, 50, 50, 50. Okay. It has, you know, significant changes to her feet. Um, We don't have a way to attack the underlying problem of it yet, which means it can definitely come back. Um, And then, you know, so there's, there's a handful of factors in there. So we gave her a fair prognosis. Oh, good. Well, thank you for sharing this great little story about a pony. And I've got one last question for you, which is as a a new veterinarian, you've been working at the college for several years now. Um, what did you tend to get wrong or what, what mistake or mistakes would you, would you say you made when you first graduated? I think I overinterpreted a lot of radiographs. I think, I think I felt like I had to, I don't know, prove is the word I had to, I had to prove my suspected diagnosis or I guess I felt like if I told the client, I think you need radiographs, I felt almost obligated to find something to show them on the radiograph. Um, you know, and so I don't know if I was trying to prove it to the owner or to myself that I was right. Um, but I feel like as a result of that, I, I overinterpreted a lot of radiographs. As I practiced longer and I started to understand more, I guess I realized how insensitive a radiograph is and I started to understand more about different disease processes and know that it takes time for things to show up on radiographs. Um, So 
just because you don't see it on a radiograph doesn't mean it's not there. Um, so yeah, so I think, yeah, I think I overinterpreted a lot of radiographs. I think that's a really valuable insight, something I was certainly guilty of. And I think it brings up this interesting point, which is one, getting running a test and having those results come back normal is a valuable piece of information. As much as we're trained to come up with the diagnosis and find the disease, sometimes it's really valuable to say, hey, you've this, this part of the test is normal. Yes. Negative information is absolutely still information. Right. And I think, you know, the other thing is that there's such a range of normal variants. And I would imagine with your experience now looking at, you've probably looked at tens of thousands of equine radiographs at this point in your career. You've probably learned there's a fair amount of normal that just doesn't look like the textbook. And that is something I think that takes a little bit of time to start to build into your diagnostic repertoire. Yes, I think most radiographs you're looking at in your life, whether it is small animal abdomens or, or horse legs, I think are going to be normal. And I, I think learning how to recognize normal and be comfortable with normal, it, that takes time, but it's important. Thank you, Dr. Madsen, for coming on the show. My pleasure. And that's the case. Our thanks to Dr. Lori Badson for sharing this case with us. An important aspect of Cushing's disease is that there is no cure, but that it can often be managed through medication. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing. In addition to this podcast, we offer a wide range of learning opportunities for veterinary students and veterinarians. You can learn more about those by visiting online.vetmed.illinois.edu. I'm Dr. Ashley Mitek, your veterinary detective.